Speak when you are angry and you will make the best speech you will ever regret. Ambrose Bierce. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hole. And I'm Lee Esses. We have been talking all month about author conduct and ways to make sure that you're engaging with your fandom in a healthy way, ways to build that fandom, and ways to completely destroy your writing career. (laughs) And oh boy, have we seen a lot of that recently. One of the things that I have seen among advertisers, among readers, is this tendency to rage bait, to make people outraged at something in order to get high engagement on their TikToks or their social media posts or whatever. There was this idea 130 or so years ago that all advertising is good advertising. And I feel like that's gone away since social media became a thing, but the mentality still sticks around of if somebody is saying my name, then it's good. People are knowing my name because their temporary anger will fade, but they'll know my name for the rest of their lives. This is a mentality that people have. I'm going to blame P.T. Barnum for a lot of that, but the internet never forgets. So there is a slight element to this, that all publicity is good publicity. The one case that I can remember is the male author who got onto social media and said, I am going to read books by female authors until my book becomes a New York Times bestseller. Almost immediately, people started calling him out for being very insincere about this because the kinds of books that he chose were all classics by women written a hundred years ago. Not a great look if you're trying to promote other female authors. And then when somebody did read his story, they called him out for writing what was essentially a manic pixie e-girl. Just totally stereotyping the women in his book and treating them like garbage. Very opposite of what he was trying to present himself on social media to be. And this blew up. A lot of people were like, oh, how dare he? But do you know how many people I saw who bought his book specifically to read it and call it out for how bad it was? It was one of those moments where I kind of had to sit back and go, you're giving him what he wants. Yes, his ideal world was probably nobody's going to catch on, but people did catch on and they bought his book anyway. So you have this weird kind of flip side of At times, it can work out for you, and you do get some sales, but he didn't become a bestseller because you had enough negative voices out there going, don't read his book, don't do this thing, because it's trash and he's trash. Instead of saying all publicity is good publicity, approach negative publicity with the mentality of how do I make it good? And I think that would be closer to the original sentiment in the way that phrase was said. But do not go into the social media world seeking out negative publicity. That is something called rage farming or rage baiting. A lot of people will use this on social media as a tactic to basically clickbait. 
where they post a hot take or a controversial something or something they know a lot of people are passionate about. They'll go on and be like, you know what? Pineapple belongs on pizza. And you will get so many people in those comments starting to fight and argue and be like, no, pineapple is trash. It never goes on pizza. Yes, it's great. You absolutely have to have it. No pizza is good without pineapple. You get this massive explosion of engagement. And that's exactly what it is, is engagement that pays the person who posted the video. Prior to TikTok, a very popular thing in the writing world to do would be to have a typo because we're all kind of grammar Nazis. And it's like, oh, you used the wrong effect there. And then you'll have 17,000 people who all saw you use the wrong effect commenting, saying you use the wrong effect. And then you've got 17,000 comments on your video and this many more views because it's engaging people on the other side. Rage baiting is intentionally putting that misspelling or intentionally putting a controversial thing out there just for the attention. One of the things that is just how we are programmed to function is we will, as human beings, have a stronger immediate knee-jerk reaction to something negative than something positive. I follow a pretty famous dog on social media, and he makes me very happy every time he passes through my feed. I also follow some people who are rage-baity by nature, because I'm interested in the conversations that are happening, especially in the publishing world. But I don't follow the rage-baity ones for long because they don't make me happy when they show up in my feed. I've seen a couple of people recently on TikTok posting saying like, hey, if you want to keep coming back and sharing your opinions and arguing with me in my comments, great. It helps extend my reach. It helps me get out to more people because people are engaging with it. But if you don't want to see my content, you need to stop engaging with it. That's why I keep showing up on your FYP is because you keep engaging with it. And the algorithm thinks, oh, they must like this thing. So I'm going to show it more. There was a month at least or so ago where this traditional publisher said, hey, self-published authors are basically failed traditional published authors. And you know how many stitches that video got? How much commentary that person got because of this very inflammatory statement that they made? To be honest, I had never heard of that author beforehand, even though she had like 30 something or more books or a 30 year long career. I don't know. It was forever. But suddenly she became relevant again. Suddenly her name was more broadly known because she was getting a bunch of engagement. Yeah, kind of negative engagement, but it was engagement that she wasn't getting before. I keep arguing almost in favor of clickbaiting and rage baiting. I am not. It is not good. There is a logic to it. And I think we can't do this episode without acknowledging the logic behind rage baiting and then saying, hey, this is why it's also a really bad idea. Because if I were ever remotely interested in a book cover of that particular person's and then I saw the name like, oh, this person thinks people like me are trash, then I will put it back down. I don't want to support that kind of person. I'm going to go support an indie author just to spite this other person over here. <laughs> this sort of tactic, this baiting idea is very common and not just in the social media world, not just a way to get high clicks and engagement. It's fairly common out there. 
There is a fairly famous YouTube chess analyst who goes over really big games in the chess world and goes, see this move on turn seven? This is why they won the game on turn 50 and takes you through the analysis of all of these chess things. He posted a video going, I'm quitting chess and this is why. And people are like, whoa, this very major character on the chess scene is quitting chess. I have to know why. You click on it and watch the video and at the very end go, okay, fine, I'm coming back to chess at the end of the same video. (laughs) But people are clicking on that video for sure. This reminds me of Sanderson and his announcement for the secret projects that he did where he started out this video and it was very somber. I have a confession to make. And that was the title of this video. Like, I have to confess something. He starts out, he's like, I have been lying to you and I'm really sorry. All the Sanderson fans just heart drop, stomach to the floor, terrified of what's going to come out of his mouth. Because we've seen too many people that we have liked to follow that have done great things that turned out to be trash people. So we're all like, oh no, what has he been lying about? What is happening here? Is he going to stop writing? And then he's like, I wrote four secret books. <laughs> so it was, it was a very baity thing, but it got really good reception because it was something positive in the end. If you are doing this in this positive marketing kind of technique, you only get to do it once. This cannot be your brand of I'm quitting chess being every episode that you release. Brandon Sanderson doesn't get to pull something like that again anytime soon, especially if he ever had something that he actually had to confess and apologize for. (laughs) So making sure that you limit this particular technique is probably best all around. It's effective in small doses. If we as a podcast decided to be rage baity in our content, we might get a lot of engagement. We might get a lot of people listening to argue with us, to fight against us. But that's not our goal. That's not our purpose. It would be the complete opposite of what we actually want. And while it may gain us more flash pan popularity and acknowledgement, it's not going to get the sustained interest that you need. And that's, I think, what a lot of people miss when they're trying to do the rage baiting promotions or style. They forget that through rage bait, you're not actually building an audience. You're not actually building people who will follow you and continue to engage in good ways where they will buy your book, where they will buy what you offer them. You are just getting engagement on a platform of people fighting with each other who aren't going to go buy anything from you because they vastly disagree with you. There is a thing that I see a lot, especially in political circles, called manufactured outrage. This is when something happens and the immediate influencers who are responding to that thing, often in political scenes, it's the media, are saying, okay, this is what the conversation is about. We're going to make sure that we point this conversation in this direction so that the argument is something that we're already equipped to fight. This is something that everyone already knows their opinion on, and here's another reason to bring it up and make sure that their outrage is in this contained corner where I know how to deal with it. It's a way to control the conversation as a whole, and manufacturing outrage 
in something that's already there. The writing world equivalent would be something along the lines of the traditional versus self-publishing. Both of those worlds are so in flex that six months from now, more is going to be changing. But if you bring up this particular conversation, it's going to continue the same old conversations over and over and over again. You know people are going to respond in the same way over and over and over again. This gets responses. This also controls the narrative, but it's not healthy in finding solutions. When you are applying these old arguments to new things that are happening, it's not going to be helpful it might get that engagement, it might fall under that rage-baity conversation, but it's not going to be helpful in whatever the actual conversation is. One of the things that I think makes rage bait so effective in getting engagement is that combined with what you said earlier about how humans are naturally more likely to react quickly when it comes to negative emotions, because they're reacting so quickly, they aren't thinking about the fact that this is potentially rage bait. They just go, oh, I disagree with this so strongly, I must act, before they go, wait, why do I need to engage with this? So there are a couple ways that can help you spot rage bait. And I think in the writing world, we need to know how to spot this so we can stop engaging and stop giving a platform to people who don't deserve it, who are just trying to bait us into views so they can get paid. The biggest way I see this happen across the board is offending half of your audience so that they will talk to each other, they will argue with each other. You say pineapple belongs on pizza, and we're just going to ignore the people who put banana on pizzas. Fruit pizzas, weird. <laughs> I'm taking my stand. <laughs> You say something that will offend a chunk of your audience so that they can argue with you in the comments. To pull in another one of my current special interests, Baldur's Gate 3. This happened a lot with headlines about Baldur's Gate 3. In one case, there was a YouTube thumbnail that boldly stated that Baldur's Gate 3 was a financial failure, which immediately got all of the kind of rabid fans to jump in and start arguing and saying, no, it's not, it's the best game. Millions of people have downloaded, blah, 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 start arguing their points without realizing that they've just been baited. And they're arguing on behalf of a product. <laughs> Here's your sign. <laughs> Another way that I see these headlines offend people is they will vilify something that is incredibly common. Often something that is well-intentioned I've seen rage bait on things like stop holding the door open for women because you're making women small by implying they can't do it themselves. You're just trying to be nice. Man or woman, hold the door open. It's okay. You're not a terrible person for holding a door open. That vilifying of what is intended to be a decent human being action is what got the conversation going. Because almost all of us have held a door open for somebody at one point in our lives. So if you're saying you're a terrible person because you do blah, 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 that's a rage bait. Another common rage bait that I think is especially prevalent in social media right now is calling out generations and making fun of specific generations. Oh, those boomers. 
They're so old, they don't know how the world works. Oh, look at those Zoomers. They think they invented everything. And then the constant blaming millennials for literally everything that happens in the world. When someone does this, they know that a large chunk of their audience either falls into that generation or has an allegiance with somebody in that generation. So they're saying something like all boomers send notes to each other using telegraphs. By saying these kinds of things that are just blatantly not true, people are still going to want to argue with you on it. Almost every time you see a generation name used, it's used in a rage bait kind of scenario. And this applies not just to generations, but to fandoms and to specific belief groups. Suddenly lumping a bunch of unique individuals into one group to be summed up by some ridiculous statement is always going to be rage baity. Because you're going to get people in that group jumping in to try to argue their point. One thing that I see a lot is only a true so-and-so will share this or only a true so-and-so will get this. And then you get a lot of people jumping in and we're like, well, I'm not a big Swifty, but I know this. Yeah, I've seen a lot of only true Supernatural fans know these five bits of trivia about the show. And they're like incredibly common things that people who have not even seen the show go, the actors interact like this and their kids are friends. It's like, yeah, no kidding. (laughs) When they work on a show together for umpteen years. So they're calling out fandoms. They're calling out specific groups of people for the things that they hold near and dear to their hearts. Only a true Christian will like and share this post so that we can see easily This person is a true Christian because they liked and shared this post. Or it's guilting somebody who's like, well, I'm a true Christian, but I don't want to share it. But I have to share it because what if my friends look at it and see that I didn't share it and suddenly they don't think I'm a true Christian and, you know, spiraling. Yeah. Guilt is another great fodder for this bonfire. Outside of categorizing your target audience in certain ways so that they fight amongst themselves... Another way that you can identify rage baiting is when people say unpopular opinion, but Dean is the more attractive Winchester. I have always seen these, this might be a hot take or this is an unpopular opinion, and they say something that is a super popular opinion. Other things you'll hear are, that's just my opinion or don't come after me, but we're allowed to eat chocolate on Valentine's Day. Obviously. Yet somehow it still works. People still jump into the comments to be like, I don't know what rock you're living under, blah, blah, blah. And they'll say things like, I support you. Yes, you are allowed to eat chocolate on Valentine's Day. And it's like, no one's telling them they can't. That's the rage baity thing is you're saying something like you're a victim, especially, or people are going to hate me for saying blah, blah, blah. Instead of just holding true to yourself, you're calling and rallying your fandom to support you in this trying time of being told you can't have chocolate on Valentine's Day. Or whatever it is. That's just a silly example, but chocolate. (laughs) On a larger scale, something that is kind of rage-baity is just making really bad career choices. The most recent example that I can think of for this is that author who review bombed a bunch of people, destroyed her career, 
somebody else came in like right after her in the drama world and tried to accuse another author of plagiarism because apparently this author copyrighted the sun. <laughs> you know. So this first author who did the review bombing could have just disappeared into oblivion. People weren't talking about her anymore. Other drama had come up. She'd already ruined her career. It really couldn't get much worse, right? But no, she's back. She came out with a news article published in some online whatever, I don't know, and basically blamed all of her actions on mental illness, on autism, on ADHD, on depression, on whatever else that she said that she had. Immediately, I recognized it as she is sad to not be in the spotlight anymore. She must bring the attention back to herself in any way possible because obviously she's not going to get a positive response anymore. She destroyed that. So she's going to do what she can to get any attention. We're going to talk at the end of this episode about the right and wrong way to apologize if you are needing to issue a public apology for something. But a lot of why this person is blaming it on mental illness is because if anybody comes against her, then she can say, you just have a stigma against mental health. She can redirect it and use this conversation that people are trying to use in a positive way to help people better themselves. Use it as a shield to go, you can't come after me anymore because mental health. So what... Should you do if you see rage bait out in the real world? What should you do if you see somebody intentionally trying to farm for engagement? Personally, that need to respond to engage should be acted out in the unfollow button. Just ignore them. Do not put a comment on. I fell for that for the first couple times before I realized what was really going on. I was still fairly new to social media at the time. But I would be like, no, 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 this is how things go. And it's like, oh, no, you're intentional. You're not wanting to be corrected. You're just doing this for attention. Even watching it all the way through and not responding, not engaging otherwise is enough to make it appear back on your page. It gives it views. It tells the algorithm, this is the kind of content you want to see. Great. Here's more. So if you can quickly identify that they are rage baiting, that they are just trying to get you to engage in any way possible, your best way is to just move on. And that discourages their dishonest behavior. You know how in Pokemon, you've got like the baby version and then they evolve into a more advanced version of the same Pokemon? I feel like rage baiters are the evolved, more advanced version of what used to be internet trolls. People who would slide in and say something inflammatory and then just leave just to be antagonistic because the internet is a mask that you can't come after the actual person. The more evolved version is, now I'm going to do this for money and you can come to me for the rage instead. Hey, look, I can get paid to be a troll. So as we mentioned earlier, the thing with rage bait is that unfortunately it works. That's why people do it. But as an author, as somebody who is trying to build a public presence and build an audience that is faithful and consistent, rage bait is not a good idea. I feel like, yes, you might get a lot more attention, but you're cutting yourself off at the knees. 
your long-term opportunities, you're lighting them on fire. If you review bomb all these people and all of a sudden you're the best rated person in this particular category, that's the goal, right? But it doesn't last because now publishers and agents and the world at large is going to abandon you and not purchase your book before it's even available beyond pre-order. And the thing with this rage sort of engagement is that it is a flash in the pan. It does not last. The offense will fade, but the recognition and tie to negative emotions will live on. I may not remember exactly what this review bomber author did. Two years down the line, three years, whatever. I may not remember exactly what she did, but I will remember her name and associate it with negative things and go, oh, I don't remember why, but I know I don't want to read her stuff. And here's kind of the dangerous thing about being a public figure in any regard. The internet has a really long memory. If I posted a tweet saying something incredibly racist, and then I get a whole bunch of attention because people are retweeting it and then arguing with it, all of my rage-baity ideas are invested in this type of behavior. And then I have the fandom, and I have this following, I have all this attention, people are buying my books happily ever after, right? No, because when 10 years from now, I post something else, they're going to call back on this tweet and go, hey, this person is a terrible person, here is evidence of it from a decade ago. I think it was like, what, six, seven years ago that we saw several people right after another get canceled because of some post that they tweeted or that they put out there in the world when they were in college. Yeah. And the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial, where she was claiming victim on all of these things. And there are so many people standing by her. Now that the trial swung in Depp's favor, people are like, nope, I wasn't ever part of that. I wasn't voicing my opinions on political things when they were. The internet is not going to forget that. And nothing is ever truly gone from the internet. The one thing with this is that some people have made it their brand, their identity online to enrage and offend people. But it's a slippery slope if you are wanting consistent engagement in a way that will actually gain followers and people who will buy your book. Because that sort of content is exhausting. It might help you find an initial surge of people engaging with you, but it is not going to last very long. So if deciding if you want this to be your brand, ask yourself, do you really want people to know your name in association with blank? If you're taking a stand and you're going, I have such and such political opinion, it's in all of my writing, and this is something I stand for, and if you hate me, move on. If you don't, I might be the person for you. If that's part of your brand, then go for it. But you have to ask yourself, do you want to be known for this thing? The better thing to do is simply be genuine. You don't always have to be positive, but you also don't always have to be negative. Simply be genuine in how you present yourself on social media with your fans. Rage baiting is not the same as negative reviews. Some negative reviews can help the right readers find you. The example that comes to mind is Rebecca Thorne, who got a lot of really negative reviews in her first book because it had lesbians. And that was just one of the reviews was too many lesbians. 
And she was able to use that negative review in a positive light in her promotion to get more readers who actually want to read sapphic stories. That did not equate to her rage baiting people into, look at this trash person who gave me a negative review, we should all go make their life miserable and make me happier by buying my book because trash person. She spun it in a positive way to gain a positive following. When you do this, when you're using a negative review in a positive way, it's helpful to make it very clear that you are using this in a marketing because you don't want it to look like you're targeting the person. If you just say, hey, here's what somebody said about me and you like retweet it and go, let's all laugh at them, that can be very dangerous. So if you wanna play it safe in using negative reviews in your marketing, make sure it's clearly a sponsored ad kind of thing. These are all labeled on whatever social media you are. It'll say sponsored, it'll say ad, Make sure it's labeled clearly like that so that it doesn't feel like you're attacking the person. You're using the review to find the right people to follow you. Because overall, anything that you do on social media, anything you do in the public face is to help you gain a following, help you gain an audience. And going off the rails on social media might get you some engagement but it is not going to be a long-term support system for your career as an author. There is one person that I follow where this is his brand. Rage baiting, especially in the publishing world in general, is his brand. I like a lot of what he has to say about certain aspects of the world, and I don't like what he has to say about others. He is very pro-self-publishing, telling your own story, that kind of thing but he's also very anti-instruction and learning. He wants everyone to discover their own path as a storyteller instead of something like what we do here on the podcast, where we help you jump the hurdles because we learn the hard way. So there are some things I like about him, some things I don't. It's an interesting conversation either way, but since that's his entire brand, I'm okay continuing to follow him because I don't feel like he's trying to manipulate me He's just going, hey, guys, here's another example of what I was talking about. Now, to kind of tie in the rest of the month and talk about behaving badly as an author out in the world, you need to acknowledge that there may be a time where you slip up, where you do something, and you need to apologize for whatever it is that you did or said. We have seen so many examples of bad apologies recently. Basically non-existent apologies in an attempt to quote-unquote apologize. My publisher made me apologize for the stupid thing I said, so here's my apology. You're stupid for reacting to it. So what does a bad apology look like? And I think the most common one that I see that makes it a bad apology is, I'm sorry that you felt that way. It's not an apology for what you did. It's an apology that, mm. It puts the blame on the person who has a grievance for your actions. It's like, well, I'm sorry you felt that way. Your feelings are really what I'm apologizing for, not necessarily my wrongdoing. We're going to talk about good apologies in a second. One of the things is to acknowledge the impact of your actions And I think this is a conceited attempt at that. I'm sorry that your feelings are like this, but your apology should be for the actions, not for the consequences. 
Because you don't have control over the consequences, you have control over the action. Another bad apology tactic is to make excuses. Well, this is why I made this choice. I did this because my medication changed and I was depressed and I had autism. That's not an excuse. That's blaming something that suddenly vilifies a whole bunch of other people that aren't doing what you're doing, that have those same neurodivergences or whatever. Saying, this is why I made this choice, this is why these are my excuses, is not an apology. Because that, again, makes it about yourself instead of making it about the incident and there's no sincerity in it. It's like, well, you should still be paying attention to me. I did it for attention to me. Here's another reason to pay attention to me. With this Review Bomber author specifically, it was a lot of blaming external things instead of an acknowledgement that she did something wrong. It could have been as simple as, I struggle with mental illnesses, and this was a low point for me. I know and I recognize that I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. I apologize. Like, you can still have some explanation in there, but what makes it bad is a lack of sincerity. And people recognize a lack of sincerity. They are far smarter than you think they are. Well, I just want you to know it was never my fault to begin with. It was my marketing team. They sent out all of these emails and it's not my fault. I'm sorry that this happened, but blame these other people instead of me. You mean the marketing team that you hired, that you co-founded? Your your marketing team? (laughs) Again, specific example there. Just like the other two, this is a blame shift. What this lacks is taking responsibility for your own actions. Whether it was yours or not, it was your email. It was your hired team. It ultimately should have been your final say. You can't blame someone else for what should have been yours or what came across as coming directly from you. Another thing that I see in terrible apologies very often is saying, I was a victim too. And I think this is an attempt to connect with the people that you're apologizing to, but it doesn't end well because you're going, well, you need to pity and accept me because you're asking for pity and acceptance because of my actions. I was a victim also. I was abused as a kid. Therefore, I have all these terrible actions. It's not my fault. It's anyone else's fault. I'm just a victim just like you are. It's a bad apology. Another common bad apology is, well, I thought they'd be flattered. You see this a lot in Hollywood. You hear this a lot from men trying to pick up women in really skeevy ways where they're like, well, I complimented her. I thought she'd be flattered. Yeah, you complimented the size of her chest. That's not something she has control over. That's not a compliment. That's creepy and gross. I thought they'd be flattered is another excuse, bad apology tactic if you are reaching out to a bunch of underage women to review your book in skeevy ways. Oh, I thought they'd be flattered because I'm complimenting their bodies. Another thing to watch out for in a bad apology is how they're saying their apology itself. I know English is fickle, but if you're saying sorry for, that's okay. If you're saying sorry if or sorry but, that's not okay. So using phrases like, I regret this thing, this action, I'm devastated to learn, kind of points the blame at somebody else. 
but making sure you are taking responsibility for what you're doing is really what an apology is about. There are a lot of really good ways to make an apology as well. When it comes to making a good apology, the base of this is sincerity. You have to truly take this as an opportunity to reflect and recognize what mistakes you made in the process. Without that sincerity, it will always be a bad apology. So literally say in your apology, I learned from this mistake. I thought aloof just meant that they were out and about and not interested in socializing. I didn't realize it had this pejorative. I learned. I now understand. I'm not going to use this word in this way again. It is a good representation of how you learned from the mistake. A recognition that a mistake was made and here is how I have changed as a result. Part of that is the taking ownership of it. I acknowledge the pain that I caused. And again, that is the, I did this. I am sorry. I want to fix it. Oftentimes, the people calling for an apology just want to be acknowledged. They just want people to understand that this is not okay. By making a good apology, you're acknowledging these are the people These are the ones that I've hurt and the ones that need to be apologized to for my actions. A really easy way to start off a good apology is to say, I heard you. I acknowledge you. I am listening. I have heard what you said and I want to make it right. That making it right could come in the form of, I review bomb these people. I apologize. Go out and buy their books and support them. I think a good example of this outside the writing world contrasts really well with the other side of this is when The Rock and Oprah did their Maui Fire Recovery Fund. They called for people to donate to help this recovery fund and didn't really acknowledge that most people that they were asking to donate struggle to just pay for themselves right now. And here are these two very rich, very famous people saying, hey, give us your money so we can donate it. And The Rock was coming from a place of sincerity with his apology. He said, basically, I hear you. I know where you're coming from. I used to live paycheck to paycheck. And I am sorry for what I've done. Here's what I'm going to do to make it right. He had a good response to that. Oprah, on the other hand, blamed everybody else for the outrage response that she had gotten. She blamed all of the people being like, well, I'm just trying to help. All these people are the wrong ones. So it was a good apology contrasted with a bad apology. That's a really good example of what we're talking about. The Rock had this acknowledgement, the ownership, and he also, I believe, had a promise about what he was going to do moving forward of donating his own money, of bolstering this fund himself as well. Apologies mean nothing if there isn't an action taken afterward. If there isn't something done to improve your own actions and or make reparations for the wrong things that you've done. So in making a good apology, you acknowledge the pain that you've caused and then you say, okay, moving forward, here's my promise to everyone Hold me accountable to this. I want $1 from every book that I sell to go to the people that I've wronged or whatever it is that you're apologizing for. Make a promise 
about how to make this right and then stick to it. And honestly, an apology doesn't have to be very long. It can be very short, simple, to the point. Oftentimes that comes across as more genuine than the page and a half long explanation of why medication made her review bomb people. Timing is also key for a good apology, and it's so difficult because if you are still emotional about whatever it is that you later apologize for, it's very easy to make a bad apology and feel like you're sniping back at people. On the other hand, waiting three months and then apologizing long after the outrage has faded is a way to bring the attention back on yourself and back on the incident. And it either feels manufactured or it feels very corporate and insincere because we spent all of this time putting this apology together. Or in this case, it was very poor non-apology again. Just, hey, look at me. Don't forget about me, please. So finding a good amount of timing can be difficult. I would say if someone comes at you saying, I want an apology, at least go to sleep on it and then wake up the next morning because then you're not responding to the individual. You can approach it with a clear head and with less emotions and really be honest with yourself when making this apology. The whole point of this episode, the rage bait, the apologies, all of it is... As an author, you are a public figure. You need to present yourself with sincerity and honesty. People recognize that. People are drawn to that. They recognize falseness. Whether that is the rage baiting that is not going to get you a long-term fan base or a bad apology for something that you did. People recognize when you are not being honest with them. So you need to be honest with them and with yourself, which you can do easily if you write selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing. <laughs>